Podcast. You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews of people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 260. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Annika Harrison and Pontus Böckmann. See you, Astok! Hello! Hey, sir, hey, son. Ooh! How are you guys? Not bad, thank you. Yourselves? <laughs> I'm fine. Very well. I'm good. I'm tired. <laughs> what are you doing at the moment, Annika? <laughs> <laughs> you mean like right now or in general? <laughs> yeah, all right now. <laughs> uh, I'm feeding a baby. <laughs> Has to be done. You are amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Do you guys know any other podcaster out there who does that? No, in most podcasts, they have cats. We have a baby. <laughs> That's better. Yeah. <laughs> in most other podcasts, they have men. Correct, correct. <laughs> so. That's right, that's right. So women are massively underrepresented, but breastfeeding me, women are even more underrepresented uh, while recording. <laughs> yes. So I would like to nominate Onika to the official status of the coolest podcaster ever. Right. Yes. I, I like that. I like yes, that. Yes, <laughs> very good. Okay. Thank you. And for listeners who are maybe a, a little bit uh, unsettled by this, the camera is off. <laughs> yeah, they're not watching me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that had to be said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But also, I have to say, like, there's always, in, in Germany at least, there's this debate of, like, breastfeeding in public. Mm -hmm. And people are like, oh, you can't do that because it's um, actually, like, making guys horny and everything. And on the other side, it's just like, hey, do you really want me to, like, go to a toilet or so just to feed my baby? Yeah. It's, it's just like, I think there's a huge debate there. And, yeah, it's interesting what people yeah. think. <laughs> and the other thing is that it doesn't necessarily have to be all visible i mean yeah exactly there are certain methods are very sophisticated methods to do it very very quietly and not very visibly so uh yeah i really don't understand people who complain about that it's just a, a such a natural thing yeah yeah i, I think i saw uh, if it was a cartoon or something i don't remember but there was a scene in a restaurant with a, a lady who was breastfeeding her baby and uh, the the man on the next table, he said, oh, come on, can we have a, a, a cloth or something to cover this? And and then the the waiter comes with a cloth and puts it over his head. <laughs> so I think that's, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> that's cool. So, uh, yeah, that's great. And uh, the nice weather is coming soon in just a couple of months. And uh, you can do it all outside during the day. Hope you can go outside. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not in a massive lockdown or not a stricter lockdown than, than currently are. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and I have to say, like, during the lockdown, our friend uh, Martin Mura, who we interviewed in episode 236, he was really productive because he made all these videos about COVID-19 and why, like, how the vaccinations work and why it's not as funny as a flu and everything and he actually got almost knighted <laughs> as a skeptic in the way that mm. Attila Hildmann, who is this COVID denier, 
is actually calling his followers to downvote Martin Moda's videos now. So mm. they reached the COVID denier king himself. <laughs> so yeah, we're, we're very proud of Martin. <laughs> Absolutely. It sounds like Martin <laughs> Moda is now a honorary confounder of the year, like just like me. Yes. <laughs> very good. Very good. Uh, de definitely, yes. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. We've actually been busy on, on the Swedish skeptics as well. Uh, doing some videos uh, and we've put them now on our new uh, uh, website mm -hmm. good vof.se and on one new page there now you can uh, flip through all the youtube videos but they are sort of embedded very nicely in the in the web page there and the latest one that we uh, published just the other day is the swedish skeptics in the pub online which is in english which is why I mention it. Uh, so you can go there and see a, a talk called Teaching Critical Thinking in the Era of Misinformation with uh, uh -huh. Philippe Longchamp, who is a French-Canadian teacher, but he's working here in Sweden and he got the award Teacher of the Year for 2020 because he insists on teaching critical thinking to, to the kids. Really cool. A very interesting interview. So go and have a look. We'll put the sh uh, link in the show notes. Mm. But I think what we should do is uh, crack on with the show. Um, the beginning of which, as usual, will be finding out what happened this week in Skepticism. Yeah, and this week we actually have a pretty cool anniversary. Mm -hmm. Because on the 5th of February 2011... The 1023 campaign happened in 2011 for the first time, or rather for the first time on a bigger scale. It got organized by the Merseyside Skeptic Society, whom we all know. Yeah. And it was to raise awareness and uh, to protest against homeopathy. So, what it, it started with a mass suicide stunt of a uh, scap in 2004 in Belgium, where they all overdosed <laughs> on homeopathy. <laughs> And all survived. <laughs> and it turned to an international event during a Skeptics in the Pub meeting where um, they pretty much shared the idea. And the name comes from the Avogadro number or Avogadro constant. And it was very cool to, to do this challenge in the UK because in the UK you can buy homeopathy in normal drugstores, or at least you could back then. And the first overdose situation they had was done on the uh, 30th of January 2010. And the second second bigger one, the one we were talking about, was on the 5th and 6th of February 2011. And it had a worldwide um, participation of um, 70 cities in 30 countries. It was done in the UK during QED. <clears throat> um, but there were also people in Cardiff, in Hungary, in Amsterdam, in Brussels, in the US, so pretty much around the globe. And the campaign also received praise and support by notable skeptics like Stephen Novella and James Randi. So d did you participate in it? Yeah, of course. I, I did not, because this was just a year or two before I uh, was aware of the skeptical movement. I didn't know about it. Ah, okay. 
I actually was the one of the organizers of the Hungarian participation and in my hometown I was the chief organizer and I was the spokesperson as well for the campaign. So yeah, we joined the challenge and there were about a hundred people at three different locations in Hungary overdosing. How many survived? All a hundred of them, e- although there was one person <laughs> who developed a bit of a diarrhea afterwards and that was due to the lactose. Oh, ah, yeah. In the, the little globuli. Yeah, so it's not true that there's nothing in it. There's actually <laughs> some sugar. There is lactose. And the, the yeah. problem is that it's it's lactose. It's not it's not just any sugar. It's lactose. And a lot of people are lactose intolerant. <laughs> so we did not ask for that. So that was a mistake on our end. But the guy actually developed a bit of a diarrhea afterwards. <laughs> I also thought, like, if you overdose on homeopathy and you're a diabetic, then also s- things could happen, right? Because it's essentially sugar. Yeah, it is indeed. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, that was fun. I mean, a 1023 campaign. We put up a complete website and it's still operational. It's still up and running, explaining a lot of things about homeopathy. We should put it in the link. That was probably the best outcome. Uh, here in Hungary of, of all that. And we could, yeah. we had the opportunity to talk about it. So I think it was one of the greatest hits of, uh, the Merseyside skeptics and, um, and Michael Marshall and Mike Hall and those guys. Okay. Thank you very much, Anika. Thank you. Okay. Moving on to many people's favorite segment, which is when Pontus pokes the Pope. <laughs> Yes, let's go over to the latest news from the largest pedophile organization in the world. Oops. (laughs) And I should start by giving a shout out to our friend Bob in Spain, who helps us keep an eye on things going on there. So thank you for the tip. Keep it up, Bob. A few weeks ago, I saw some news that uh, didn't make it to the show about the Jesuits in Spain revealing 81 cases of child abuse carried out by 60 five members and that was this was going back all the way to 1927 and when with frankie being uh, a jesuit himself i almost brought it up on the show but the tell the terrible truth is that uh, we expect this from the church so we we could do a weekly podcast just talking about things like that and uh, it didn't make the show <laughs> but now there are coming out new reports from spain uh, not only about jesuits but about a number of other congregations the newspaper el país has investigated 10 of the largest Catholic organizations and they have found uh, 61 individual child molesters that was previously unknown. And and that's even when three of the congregations have so far refused to cooperate with them. And that means that the number of known child molesters in the Spanish Catholic Church has in two weeks increased from 125 to 250. 21 and the estimated number of victims are now over 500 which is almost double than was known just two weeks ago and bear in mind this is probably just the tip of the iceberg and it's only what the congregations themselves have found and admitted to most of the abusers have since been transferred expelled or have left their orders 
Um, but that just means that they are now able to continue their terrible behavior someplace else. It's almost like you would want to call for a new dedicated effort to look into all of this. Maybe we should call it the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> but but nobody would expect that, right? <gasps> no, <laughs> nobody expects <laughs> the Spanish Inquisition. Of course not. <laughs> uh, El País seems to have the same kind of thoughts, and I will quote what they say in full. And this is the quote. The response from the 70 Spanish dioceses has been slow and not very transparent. Except for in some cases, in uh, Cartagena, uh, Madrid, Barcelona and Bilbao, the dioceses are reluctant to make the numbers of cases public that arrive at their offices. The vast majority refuse to inquire uh, into the records and how to compensate the victims. The truth is that in all countries, the, the reality of past abuses has only come to light with proper truth commissions of the governments, of the church, or both, given sufficient serious confidence to the victims to take a, the step of telling their case. If not, they remain hidden. End quote. So that's a long quote, but the, the, it's the same idea. You need some proper outside investigation going on to find all of this. You can't just leave it to the church to volunteer what's been going on. Uh, in the meanwhile, uh, Francis, the Pope has said nothing about it. Not a word. <laughs> I wonder why that is. <laughs> Suspicious. <laughs> it doesn't have the balls. <laughs> I think it's very clever in, in knowing that there's no upside to him commenting on it. It's like the Streisand effect. He, the more he would talk about it, the more people, others would talk about it. So he's trying to just keep it quiet, as quiet oh. as it can. Yeah. Probably smart, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, all right. Thank you very much, Pontus. And we are moving on to talking a little bit about COVID-19. Well, a little bit, yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of developments. One of them is that uh, the third va vaccine has been approved by the EMA. That's the, the Oxford AstraZeneca one. Uh, more on that later by Pontus. But uh, there are shortages. So in short, there are shortages and there are issues throughout the European Union about that. But the European Union just issued a vaccine tracker app as well, which uh, should include all the vaccination data from the different countries. And it, it is supposed to be an interactive live dashboard on all the info that is out there about the pandemic. <laughs> the only problem is that it's not working. <laughs> so if you try to access it, you will we will come across a lot of different issues, probably software development issues. Never mind. But talking about software, we all use Twitter, right? At least occasionally. But a new study has found that a Twitter showed a lot of so obviously uh it, it could not be detected back then, but now analyzing about a million uh, different tweets from the first quarter of the year 2020, it shows congregation of a lot of reports of symptoms of COVID-19. So people were complaining on Twitter about having these symptoms, which in retrospect could be identified as the first cases in Europe. So it shows us a potential of how social media could be used to gather 
public health data in a way. However, it raises a lot of issues with uh, data protection as well. So it's interesting. It's an interesting development, but I think it um, needs a little bit of caution when we try to, to use that in the future. But uh, there are a lot of questions. There are, there are a lot of things going on. And one of them is um, that the, the Pfizer vaccine uh, seems to be working, but not so well against the South African variant. So that is something that, that we need to uh, bear in mind that uh, new studies are emerging uh, regarding how it works uh, and if it's if it's still effective against uh, the new the new strains. And uh, as we see more and more data coming out, it looks like it's not as easy as just getting the jab and then being protected against the new variants as well completely. So we'll see. It's still not conclusive. Uh, we still don't know. However, when it comes to the vaccines, we need to bear in mind that there are more and more vaccines coming by the day. Uh, Johnson & Johnson just announced that they are ready with their vaccine. And uh, Sinopharm, that we have already mentioned, <laughs> that the Chinese <laughs> company's vaccine is in the markets as well. And I have to report that Hungary has become the first country to approve the vaccine. But the problem is that in the process, they are completely destroying the public's trust in the system. Uh, well, most of the Hungarian public has not been trusting towards Orbán's government anyway, but now they are dis destroying uh, that very much needed trust in the, the healthcare system that uh, is about to break completely down. Why is that? It's because even though the EMA has said on many occasions that the Sinopharm vaccine is, uh, well, there are a lot of data lacking for the process of approval, but that didn't keep the Hungarian government away from approving it. And we have our own medicinal agency. So the Hungarian medicinal agency should be the one approving it for Hungary. And they requested an independent team of researchers and experts to assess the validity and the approvability of the Sinopharm vaccine. And they expressed a lot of concerns about it. But Orban, he said, never mind, go ahead with it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so... A lot of people are now jumping boat and they say that, okay, I'm not going to give my name to this madness. I oppose this madness. I warned against it. It's absolutely mind-boggling how a leader can do that. He doesn't understand the mindset and how distrustful they are at the moment and how devastating it's going to be to the uptake the vaccine uptake because people will not necessarily know what they are being vaccinated with so you cannot choose between the pfizer vaccine and the chinese vaccine i'm not saying that the chinese vaccine doesn't work but there are a couple of very concerning elements of the development process and it's not absolutely not transparent we don't know a lot of things and uh even though the government says that they had their own concerns, but uh, they got the, the right answers to their questions. It's not reassuring when it comes to 
the Chinese government. Of course. Yeah, I've got a couple of questions. You don't need to worry. We we got it covered. Yeah, of course. That's the way it goes. <laughs> and uh, they have signed a contract for 5 million doses of the Sinopharm vaccine here in Hungary. Right. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, yeah. But on the other hand, there is an interesting development in Spain. Uh, thanks to Bob, who keeps sending us uh, stuff from from Spain that we don't necessarily find anyway. So, yeah, I'd like to encourage many other listeners to to follow his example. Yeah, if you're in a country where we don't necessarily tend to find good news items from, send us good ones. Send us the interesting ones. Uh, we probably don't read all the newspapers. We try. Uh, we browse through hundreds of news items a week just to find and and share with you the the best ones but uh if you send send uh, a couple of them uh towards us uh we will more likely find the best ones okay so what uh, bob sent us uh talks about how uh people in spain are much more willing to take the covid vaccine than 3 months ago 3 months ago only 20% of the, the Spanish populace showed a willingness to take the vaccine. And now it's three times that. So oh, that's good. It's about 60% right now. Uh, this is what the, the, the latest poll shows. And uh, that is an interesting development. So that shows that something is going on, something is good, that because the Spanish government might be able to convince people. And another interesting part of this story is that um, there are politicians who are jumping the queue in order to, to get the vaccine. Ooh. And but while some people take that as an offensive thing and as an expression of corruption that people tend to use their powers as politicians, but some people argue that this is a good thing because this sends the message to the general public that the vaccination is so good that politicians cannot wait to get their hands on the vaccine. Yeah. It's an interesting argument. No, that's true. <laughs> we, we have we have the same... Uh, uh, we have a few of those cases also in Sweden where some... Not, not politicians that I know of, but uh, with healthcare professionals yeah, yeah. that have managed to sneak a few doses off to their family and friends. Yeah. And that's a big thing here, but I haven't thought about the... The possible positive, yeah, exactly <laughs> effect that that may have to do because it, it sends the message as this is something you should get. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's an interesting aspect of the situation, and thanks very much to Bob for letting us know that this is going on in Spain. So, what else is there about the vaccines that uh, should be said? <laughs> yes, uh, well, there are. There's been a lot of uh, talk about uh, and some confusion about the availability of the covid vaccines mm -hmm. in the eu and also in the uk so i thought it would be good to look into the situation and see what's actually going on because i was confused so there are several different vaccines that have been ordered by both the eu and the uk it's not always the same ones but only three of them are currently approved in the EU. Well, it's the ones from Pfizer, from Moderna, and now AstraZeneca. And all of them is also, are also approved in the UK. And the UK was a little bit earlier with some of them. So they have tried to make out that they are better in handling the pandemic than, than the EU. We will see. It'll come back to that. 
but if we look at those three and how much have been ordered, we're talking about over 1.3 billion doses for the EU and the UK combined, which sounds like a lot. But how far will that take us? I've tried to put the maths together on this. And after Brexit, of course, we need to treat the UK separately. Uh, Remember also, we need two doses for every person, except for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. That's that's not what we're talking about now, because it's not yet approved. (laughs) So for for these three, we need two doses of each. And uh, if you do the math, you can see that if you look at how much the EU has ordered, it's enough to immunize actually 129% of the population. That sounds plenty good. Yeah, it's it's good. But in the UK, uh, it's below that. Mm -hmm. If you only count these three vaccines, they only cover 87% of the population. So, so much for the UK being better than, than the EU. But then again, things get complicated because this is what's ordered, but how much can be delivered? And we hear reports now that production is falling behind. AstraZeneca has announced that they will not be able to deliver the first 80 million doses in quarter one to the EU that they had promised, but only 31 million. So that's less than half, only 40%. That is because of production problems in Belgium and in the Netherlands while the UK production of the same vaccine seems to be doing better. And that's why EU has said, well, we don't care where you produce them. You have promised us our 80 million doses. Just send us the UK doses if you if you can't deliver from Belgium and the Netherlands. But then, of course, the UK has objections about that. Uh, And they say that since they signed their order first, which they did, uh, and it's already being produced there anyway, why should we send it to the EU? So it gets complicated. And then on the good side, um, in the news this week, we hear that the French company Sanofi, which we mentioned last week, because they have failed to produce a working vaccine or a good enough vaccine, they have said to AstraZeneca, well, we can help you produce our, you can use our production facilities to do that. So that's good. And they will now produce, or have promised to produce 125 million of the AstraZeneca vaccine in 2021. So there we, so there's, there is, there are Negative news and positive news. Mm -hmm. So how about the other two, Pfizer and Moderna? Will they be able to deliver what they have promised? Well, maybe. It's a huge effort for everyone involved, of course. We cannot count on everything going without hiccups. Moderna in particular, we should remember, is a brand new player. They didn't start developing vaccines until 2018. So they're new in the game. And uh, now they're ramping up production both in the US and in Switzerland... But as I said, it's new to them, and we, we don't know if they will be able to deliver what they say they can. I, I would be surprised if there wasn't some further developments further along the line here, some negative news. It, it would be expected. And then, again, there's uh, other things, uh, like all the other possible vaccines that are in the works. We have the Russian Sputnik, right, Andras? Mm-hmm. Uh, it was approved in Hungary, and now we have the Sinopharm as well, apparently. And then there are others, the Johnson & Johnson I mentioned, something called CureVac. The UK has ordered also from Valneva, Novavax, JSK, and Janssen. So they may, if those get approved, they may 
catch up with the EU ordering uh, thing. So there's a lot of unknowns. And I I just want to say one reflection I did is that if the anti-vaxxers, some anti-vaxxers have said that um, this is all a fraud, there's it's just a big conspiracy it's in the pandemic is invented for to make money for the big pharma etc i'm sure that if we already had vaccines or if they didn't work and they just handed out you know i don't know water or something we wouldn't have problems like this this is actually proof that this is a real pandemic and and uh, we we have a problem and uh, it should just reassure not be reassuring but it assures that you can be confident that the, the pandemic is real and this is a problem that we need to solve and i i'm positive i think we will solve it eventually uh i think also we should go back i think maybe on it was on the first episode this year andras you and me, we said uh, a little bit hasty, maybe that the, the delivery and logistics yeah. seems to be so. Yeah, we were so impressed, and we were so <laughs> impressed. Yes, we maybe, <laughs> maybe we have to take that back and say uh, we spoke a little bit too fast. And um, it's not, of course, that people are uh, fucking this up on purpose. Uh, it it is complicated, and it's. Uh, the demand is unbelievably high. There are billions of doses having to be produced and delivered in exactly in, at low temperatures all over the world. I've, we've just talked about the UK and 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 uh, the EU. Uh, it's a big puzzle. Yeah, and then you only see how many people actually exist. <laughs> right. So uh, it, I think there's seven point eight billion people in the world, mm -hmm. and if most well. Setting aside Johnson & Johnson, where you only require one dose, but you have to make two doses for everybody. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even get into the possibility that we have, maybe you have to have booster shots later on. Maybe this is something that we will have to do every year. Yeah, like the flu. <laughs> um, yeah, we don't know that yet. And some people even argue, I have read, I think it was on Conversation uh, last week probably, that uh, there are speculations as to how to combine the different vaccines in order to gain the most effective yeah. prevention of, of getting the disease. And uh, this one included the Sputnik as well. So they concluded that the best solution would probably be to combine the Sputnik one with the Oxford one. And <laughs> that could give <laughs> you the largest boost right. in prevention. So this, this could be the way. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, a little bit of Oxford, <laughs> a little bit of Sputnik. Yeah, don't take medical advice from this point. And to, to, uh, a little to, bit to of get in my life. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that was nice. Oh my god. Okay. <laughs> Very good. How can anyone say something serious after this? <laughs> Never mind. I'll, I'll give it a shot. I'll give it a shot. So uh, my speculation is because of the a lot of people are absolutely bamboozled by the Hungarian government's uh, decision to to order five million doses of the of the Sinopharm vaccine. But I'm pretty sure that this has a lot to do with Orban wanting to be the one who beats the system, who doesn't have to wait around and get the right vaccine, but be quick. And he's taking a risk of making a wrong decision but if it proves to be effective and it works 
then he's going to be a fucking hero, man. Ugh. And that will make him even stronger politically. So he's he likes to play roulette, but it's very concerning when he does it with uh, people's lives, which he does very often. Bastard. He is, yeah. All right. So uh, thank you. Moving on to the news. So, still not completely divorcing the, the, the topic of pandemic and, and vaccines and all that stuff. So, uh, Facebook, <laughs> everyone's favorite here. Uh, the money-making machine, right? So, uh, you probably remember, I think we, we mentioned it on our show probably even several times, that Google, Twitter and Facebook made a deal with the UK government not to let people profit directly from spreading misinformation about COVID-19 and immunization against it. So that was basically an important deal. Well, it looks like Facebook doesn't really care that much about it. Very much of a surprise, isn't it? That uh, they allow their users to profit from content that has been flagged by their own fact-checkers. Mm. So uh, some posts can still be boosted and with their advertisements and all that stuff. The, the, the content providers can make money with this as well. And The Guardian reports that an investigation by the Bureau of Investigative Journalism that is based in London revealed that 430 pages do exactly what I just mentioned. And the overall number of followers of those 430 pages amount to 45 million people. Now, out of the 430 pages, uh, those are pages of comedians, religious leaders, influencers, and they represent seven different communities and languages. English, German, Hebrew, Polish, Spanish, I don't know what, what, what else. But 260 of them have posted vaccination-related misinformation, clearly identifiably, but even the others included falsehoods on the pandemic and or vaccines in general. So basically undermining the vaccination principle and the vaccination process. 20 odd of those pages have gained Facebook's blue tick. You know, the, yes. <laughs> the little tick that indicates that that's an authentic account, that you are the person who... The problem with this is that it's only the 430 pages that have been identified by the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. That could easily be just a tip of the iceberg. Hmm. Much more can there be. So Facebook says that they have investigated the reported cases and shut down a few of those pages that um, are of concern. But that's just doing nothing, basically. The company's cynicism apparently has no limits. They spokesperson said that they could not find any direct violation of their harmful misinformation policies in most of the cases. Yeah, of course. So sp clearly spreading misinformation, but it doesn't go against their policies of harmful misinformation. No, come on, right? <laughs> but try to post a picture of a nipple somewhere; they will find that. Oh yeah, y yeah, of course, definitely. Speaking of which, <laughs> <laughs> feeding time. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good one <laughs> so apparently facebook in their rhetorics they promise a clear policy and action as well but money is more important than a responsible approach to how the spread of misinformation can be counted so go to hell facebook <laughs> <laughs> all right okay better news now our friends at concept mm -hmm. had some good news concept of course is the 
wonderful Portuguese organization of skeptics. And there is a new book out, they say, written by two of the members of Concept. They are called David Marsal, who is a biochemist and a science communicator, and Carlos Fioais. I'm sorry, I butchered the <laughs> name. So I, 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 okay. I, we should have Diana here uh, to, to pronounce it. But anyway, he is a um, professor of physics. The book that they have put out is called, in translation, Caught by the Virus, Facts and Myths About COVID-19. Uh, it is, of course, a book addressing what's true and what is false about the pandemic. It's divided into three parts. Uh, the first part is called What is Known. The second is called Infodemic. And the third one, I believe, translates into something like The Proper Science or something to that effect. Uh, unfortunately, it's available only in Portuguese, uh, so uh, I may have gotten a little bit of that translation wrong. But uh, regardless, it's a, it's a great effort, and it really shows that what's happening all over is that skeptics are working very hard to counter misinformation about COVID and about other things, and that makes it should make us proud. So well done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and something else that can really make us proud is that the and now i will butcher it oistukio <laughs> <The laughs> molina award for standing up for science got awarded the society for the advancement of critical thinking in spain awarded a aforementioned award to um butchering again um, rafael santandeu ramon for his defense of science health and education and mr Ramon is, uh, or Ramon? No, Ramon, probably. Ramon. Um, is a doctor of biochemistry and has directed 43 doctoral theses, has taught 15 university professors and was, or is the president of various organizations and societies. He's very prolific and active on your, the European and international level. He also published more than 170 articles in international journals. So we can pretty much just tip our hats and say congratulations. And you, yeah, really well-deserved award. <laughs> yeah, very good. Agreed. Well, from awards to another poll. The P People's Climate Vote is the name of the poll. And, uh, well, it was organized by the UN Development Program, and it was um, an, a joint initiative with the Oxford University. And the aim of this poll was to connect the public with policymakers. It's an interesting method that they used, and this helped them gather a lot of information from 1.2 million respondents from 50 countries, covering 56 of the world's population altogether. So the interesting innovative method was that the poll questions were distributed through adverts in mobile gaming apps mm -hmm. between October and December 2020, so quite a recent survey, just been published, and as a result of this, obviously, who are the people playing the most on mobile gaming apps? <laughs> people between the age of 14 and 18, right? <laughs> so half of the participants who are between those age ages. But do they know that? Because I think a lot of adults play games yeah, on their well. children's phones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe that. <laughs> I don't remember. Uh, I think it was explained, but I don't remember what the way way they gathered uh, that age information but i think it was part of the survey awesome. it was quite an extensive survey so uh the other thing is that i imagine people playing something and then in between the adverts uh, there comes um, a, 
a poll that pops up that, oh, do you have a couple of minutes to complete this poll? <laughs> Interesting idea, but it came out with results. What are the results? Apparently, despite the pandemic, 46% overall saw climate change as an emergency. Mm-hmm. Close to 70% of the younger ones agreed. People over 60 were only around 58% percent uh positive about that so um apparently elderly people don't care that much about the future of the, of, of the the world which is in a way understandable a little bit selfish but come on who are we to judge we are the young people <laughs> never mind <laughs> well i'm not that young anymore never mind so the the results were quite varied uh, by age and location, of course, Italy and the UK seemed the most concerned. 81% of their respondents agreed that it's, a, it's an, an emergency, the climate situation. And in France and Germany, they were the, the, the next from Europe, they were at around 77%. So still, a three-fourth of the respondents agreed. I was wondering why that might be, and I realized that both Italy and the UK are countries with very long shorelines. <laughs> so they are basically surrounded by water that the level of which keeps rising. <laughs> yeah, could be, could be. They have a bit more urgency. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, well, look at Venice. They do have a problem. Yeah, yeah. Sweden is somewhere in the middle, but the lowest are uh-huh. Moldova and Poland in Europe. So f- at 50 and 59, respectively. Now, the other thing is that, that it's very interesting. It's based on, on a dis- uh, um, geographical distribution. There was a list of 18 climate policy actions, and they had to name their favorite that they agree with the most. And overall, nothing gained more than 54% approval or or agreement mm-hmm. the climate policies were the policy actions were conserve forests and land use solar wind and renewable power climate friendly farming techniques investing more money in green business and jobs and 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 all that stuff but in western europe and north america conserving forests and land was very much supported like three-fourths of the people supported conserving forests and land mm-hmm. so it's an interesting difference compared to the overall numbers and keeping the ocean and waterways healthy came up to second place in western europe and north america hmm. whereas in eastern europe people didn't really care about that so obviously where they are not that connected to seas and oceans <laughs> as western europe is obviously they don't care about it that much so that's an interesting connection as well but interestingly again eastern europe doesn't care that much about conserving forests and land either so it's still at the first place but only 61 percent of the respondents cared that much about it so interesting developments but there is one thing that gives a clear picture and this is very consistent with other surveys that is that the education level seems to be an indicator of the acceptance of climate emergency and how much you care about climate Mm-hmm. So the more you know about it, the more you care. And I think what some of the numbers that I just mentioned, especially with uh, the oceans and how you're connected to it, you don't care about the oceans if you don't live next to it, right? So <laughs> this is the kind of 
knowledge level that you probably require in order to be sensitive enough to the problem. But it's interesting to see the correlation between higher education and more awareness about uh, mm-hmm. climate change because you don't you see the opposite correlation when it comes to vaccine denialism a lot a lot of uh, the vaccine deniers the real nut jobs are high academical people people yeah. with a lot of education yeah, so yeah. i think it there's it's complicated yeah 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 and it never ceases to amaze me <laughs> yeah yeah but yeah, you yeah. can see again and again that like um, education doesn't sa- uh, save you from being stupid. No, denying uh, conspiracy uh, theories and mm. everything. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, but what what else really is important is that our life is becoming more circle around new stuff like like innovation and solar, wind, and renewable power and all that stuff. But in Western Europe, it became very important. It's, it came in third place at 68% approval. But in Eastern Europe, it was a little bit more than 50% of, of the respondents uh, uh, saying that it's, it's so important. So that is an educational issue as well. If you don't know, if you don't learn about those renewables and different alternative energy uh, sources, then you just don't care. <laughs> right. Yeah, and in regards to the renewable um, energy, I really have good news um, okay. for you good. and for Europe. <laughs> <laughs> because um, Europe created more energy from renewables than from fossil fuels last year. So... Finally. <laughs> Good. Good. Okay. <laughs> um, so Europe seems to slowly uh, reduce um, its dependency on fossil fuels like coal. Mm-hmm. And they generated more electricity from uh, renewables in 2020. And that never happened before. Right. Mm-hmm. Do, do, is, do you think there's a link to the pandemic there? Or is it the general trend anyway? I, would, I, I don't know what the link would be, but... I would guess it's it's a general... Um, like it's it was a trend before. Yeah. I mean, obviously. Um, Hope so. I like actually like in, in, during the pandemic, you would think that maybe more electricity is needed mm-hmm. <laughs> because everybody's home and cooking and everything. Right. And streaming a lot. And streaming, yes, <laughs> mm. <laughs> using their computers. But yeah, I think um, as far as I know, it, that wasn't even really the case. It wasn't that much more. Mm-hmm. But uh, that also doesn't tell you where the electricity is coming from, obviously. Mm-hmm. And um, so that was uh, that seemed to have been a general trend. And this year, um, or like last year, 2020, they finally made that threshold. Mm-hmm. Because last year, they generated wind energy, solar, hydropower and biomass. They generated about 38% of the electricity and fossil fuel um, generated 37 So there's not much of a difference, mm-hmm. but it's at least more now. And that's a milestone. <laughs> yeah, the tri- trend is in the right direction. Yes. Good. Yeah, it is. The biggest factors are solar and wind energy. And the countries that grew most with the renewable energies were the Netherlands, Belgium and Sweden. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. And there you go. Okay. coal and nuclear energy dipped by 20, respectively 10%. And you also have to count nuclear like as a, as a bit of a in-between thing between coal and um, renewable energies because it is renewable in a way but it's also f- it's not really fossil in a way but it is really the, its own its own little um, segment yeah or at least they counted it like that in the study and even though it, it raises uh, potential waste issues it doesn't produce carbon dioxide yes or any other greenhouse gases yeah so 
That's so it's like it's it really is the, its own category in a way. Yeah, it is. It is indeed. And with energy, gas remains really popular. Mm -hmm. So gas didn't really change, like we neither grew nor decreased. But wind and solar energy seem to be replacing coal right now. And um, yeah, we're slowly edging in the right directions. But what I also found interesting is that hydropower and biomass growth pretty much stalled since um, 18. Mm -hmm. So um, what we can think about is that we really need to triple our solar and wind um, energy growth. Mm -hmm. And in the article, they even said uh, we need to triple it to meet the Green Deal targets of 2030 to, to really... Uh, yeah, step up in that regard, but it's still a step in the right direction. Yeah, and it, the, the issue is that you have to have the proper uh, environmental circumstances uh, in order to to use some renewables like hydro. Yeah, it's it's amazing uh, how much energy you can generate with that, but you need to have the right terrain for that. Yes, if you don't have the hills, if you don't have the mountains, you won't be able to use it properly. I mean, there are some ways to generate. Yeah, hydropower with lower terrains, but it's easier to do it in mountains. Yeah, and it's yeah. it's also you have to have areas that you can flood essentially, which is hard in yeah. areas that are densely populated. Yeah, right. And it's I mean we have a lot of hydro in in Sweden, but it's not without environmental yeah. consequences because you sort of ruin the big uh, uh, rivers, the ecosystem. Yeah, yeah, and the ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. with biomass, we have one that's like I always commute um, past there. Or I, I used to commute past there um, mm -hmm. before I went into parent time. And it's like you can't really have that close to villages mm -hmm. because it's stinky. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's not as bad as coal. I mean, yeah. coal is the worst. That is what we have to get rid of as soon as possible. Mm. I think that's what I like about solar and wind so much because you can have it pretty much on your roof yeah. or in your garden. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or it's really cool what, what the UK and the Netherlands, they, they do. They plant those um, wind power mills on the shores, like yes. a few kilometers into the water from the shoreline. Amazing. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> Doesn't bother anyone. Yeah. A few fishes, maybe. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's always enough wind. You, yeah, talking about winds and clouds and stuff, you probably remember a couple of months ago we talked about an amazing new find that affected the Venusian atmosphere and how we see it. So, phosphine in the clouds of Venus. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. Yes. It was a big media hit. So, scientists from the UK. Aliens. Yeah, scientists from the UK, with their leaders being Jane Greaves from the Cardiff University, published in Nature Astronomy in September. 2020 that they found uh, phosphine in uh, the Venusian atmosphere so that was based on the spectral signature of um, the phosphine molecule which is a reduced form of phosphorus one of the known ways is biogenic so organisms in anaerobic uh, ecosystems could generate it but it could be of volcanic origin but it's, it was a great find anyway now the original article shows a note from back in November 2020 that the authors identified an error in the original processing of the data. Whoops. The journal is working with the authors to resolve this matter. So until that is done, it's still ongoing. And I think this one is a great example of how science works. And this is why it made it to the list of our news. So... Now, there have been many independent analyses as well. Looks like there might have been errors and it could be 
a completely false alarm. Some papers say they couldn't identify phosphine based on the raw data, so that could have been a misinterpretation of the data that uh, the spectral signature of the, the, the phosphine could be mistaken for something else. So what could it have been mistaken for? Probably like something like sulfur dioxide. It apparently has the same absorption range at uh, around the 266.94 gigahertz. And unfortunately, it is much more likely uh, because there is a lot of volcanic activity, which is usually the main source of uh, sulfur dioxide. And uh, this is one of the, the ways that a phosphine has been speculated to be to be the, uh, the originating from. So what's wrong with this? Is that no earlier detection of phosphine could have been identified. Uh, there should have been detections of phosphine as early as in 1978. Nothing like that has been reported. Greaves and her team, they revised their concentrations of how, how much they could find in uh, the system. So we really don't know. But uh, the other thing is that uh, others who identified the, the, the spectral lines found that at around 80 kilometers of altitude was where this this level, the phosphine, could be uh, identified and that it should be very unstable at that altitude. And uh, that goes against the idea of having actual phosphine up there. So the, the, based on that, the sulfur dioxide is much more likely to be the, the one that they have identified so what now we have absolutely no idea what's going on there but it's an absolutely fascinating scientific question and it, it remains open and we need to have more people weigh in on this but this is a great example of how science works and as science alert puts it this is science at its absolute best people are weighing in People have competing ideas and there are ways to find out, but there are more measurements needed for this. This is how science works. Yeah. And I've got another item of evidence of like where you can see how science works. Mm -hmm. Because you probably heard of the Diet Love Pass yeah, yeah. incident before, right? I, I know we talked about it in the show before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it got put into a new context thanks to uh, the latest Snow Dynamics study. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Snow Dynamics? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so the Diet Love Pass incident um, is very well known. It's a, for those who don't know, <laughs> it is a tragic mystery where nine mountaineers died during a, an expedition in 19. 59. What happened was that they that the tent they were in got cut from the inside, and they were pretty much found around the tent, but in like in a diameter of like one kilometer. Some of them were naked, some of them were scantily dressed, and some even were barefoot. Some of, most of them died due to um, hypothermia, but others had um, very scary injuries like missing eyes or uh, skull fractures. And of course, that led to wild conspiracy theories like a Yeti <laughs> eating them and chasing them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or aliens, a Soviet super, super weapon, mutants that teleported into the camp <laughs> or stuff like that. And yeah, they, they obviously like something had to have happened there because you would never run outside of your tent in like an underwear if if there's arctic weather minus 25 degrees outside celsius <laughs> and first it was thought like the the actual explanation that they tried was an avalanche but then others said 
no, the mountain is like too shallow. There can't really be an avalanche there. It can't yeah, build there. But in this new study, in the snow dynamics study, they say that an avalanche is still the most likely explanation <laughs> because what they said is the group cut into the snow layers for shelter, which is like actually smart because then you're out of the wind. But this cutting into the snow layers cracked the different layers, uh -huh. which pretty much like created a... Um, almost like, you know how glaciers move? Uh -huh. Where they have like this ice and then there's this tiny wet film of, of water. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Water. And then, and then you have like the, the, the ground below and they move on this film. And that's pretty much what happened there. They said, um, the wind picked up and created more pressure. And then they had this crack in the layer. And that's how the avalanche could have been created. And the injuries that were found can also be explained by that, like a very, very massive, very brutal avalanche. Mm -hmm. What they said as a conclusion in the study is that no one will ever know for sure, like for 100% surely what happened there. Mm -hmm. But the science points to, to it having been an avalanche. Mm -hmm. Yeah, again, science triumphs over conspiracy theories. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, it's it all always also more likely than it was uh, teleporting <laughs> soldiers or whatever you said. I mean, come on. <laughs> teleporting Soviet Yeti. <laughs> yeah, teleporting Soviet Yeti. Yeah, those are the worst. Yeah. <laughs> Fearful ones. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. And this has been all the news that uh, we had to share with you, dear listeners, but we still need to find out who's been really wrong lately. Right, so we go to the UK. An interview that the Tory MP Sir Desmond Swain gave in early November last year got into the news last week. Sky News revealed that this numbskull, who is a Brexit supporter and a prominent critic of the British government response to the COVID-19 pandemic, he held an interview with an anti-vax group called, quote, Save Our Rights UK, end quote. <laughs> he told this group that COVID numbers were manipulated, that there were no excess deaths in the UK, and that they should, quote unquote, persist in their opposition to the COVID restrictions. So this was in early November, as I said, when in the UK... They had already by then 50,000 deaths related to COVID. And now, of course, the number is, has passed 100,000 deaths. Mm -hmm. So this is a Tory MP. He's in the parliament. And when asked if he would apologize for his comments, Sir Desmond said no. And he claimed that any action against him by his party would be a thought crime. Then he added, quote, I accept entirely that the situation has changed and changed dramatically as a consequence of the new variant. But I think they were perfectly legitimate and widely held views at the time, end quote. Uh, spoiler, no, they were not. <laughs> so now, just like a schoolboy, Sir Desmond will have a stern talking to by the Conservative Chief Whip, Mark Spencer, and he will be called to a meeting with actual scientific advisors. I, I don't know if that will do anything. Uh, the, the harm is already done, uh, in a way, and it's very hard to reverse when, when people spread things like this. But you have to love 
the British system, they have a person with the title Chief Whip. And I knew this, of course. But, <laughs> but this is a very official per- person or, or office, so much so that they um, reside, Mark Spencer resides at, not at 10 Downing Street, but on number 9 Downing Street. So that's hilarious. But that's a little bit beside the point. Anyway, <laughs> we cannot have government officials being so divorced from reality that they go around supporting stupid conspiracy theories. I mean, who elect these people? Stupid democracy. <laughs> yeah, let's get rid of it. <laughs> right away. Yeah, let's get rid of it. Yeah. Democracy receives the prize for being really wrong. <laughs> exactly. No. <laughs> We're not gone that far. Not quite yet. But for actively encouraging people to do things that put themselves and the public in danger while being a bloody member of parliament. So Desmond, what's his face, uh, Swain, gets today's prize for being really wrong. Well deserved. Well deserved. (laughs) All right. And that basically concludes our show. But before we go, I'd like to share a quote with you. And that quote comes from someone who will celebrate his birthday later this week. And that is Dara O'Brien, an Irish comedian and television presenter. And the quote is from one of his stand-up comedies. Herbal medicine. Oh, herbal medicine's been around for thousands of years. Indeed it has. And then we tested it all and the stuff that worked became medicine. And the rest of it is just a nice bowl of soup and some papuri, so knock yourselves out. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly how it is. <laughs> very true. Yeah, that is very true. That, that really reminds me of the um, saying, I think Steve Novella coined, coined that. It's just like, how do you call alternative medicine that works? Yeah, medicine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or and maybe it was uh, Tim Minchin. Tim Minchin. Oh, Tim Minchin, storm. Yeah. yeah. Storm, yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> But I think many people, many skeptics have have coined that phrase in different forms. It comes up occasionally. But this has been all that we could squeeze in uh, this week. Thank you very much, Annika and Pontus, for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. And I'd like to thank our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so and spread the word. And until next week, when we come back with an interview, goodbye. Tschüss. Hello. Bislat. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Shrub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe
You're listening to a baby. Actually, you're listening to a baby <laughs> eating. <laughs> listening to a baby. We may have to cut that out. <laughs> Luna. <laughs> you're listening to a baby. You're listening to Luna. <laughs> Arri. Baby now? Yeah, okay. Should be good. Okay. Um, because on the 5th of February, 2000 devil. Sorry, that was <laughs> very weird 2000 English. 2000 devil. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I heard. That's what I heard too. Yeah, it was like 2011 or something. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it was, a, oh, it was a very elf. weird German uh, no, I, German English. <laughs> I, <laughs> might, I, I, I much prefer elves to devils. <laughs> <laughs> or do I? I don't know. <laughs> it's actually really funny in Stranger Things because Eleven is called Elf, and you're just like, haha, she's an elf. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. Oh, that's right. Because so, and so you see, she's not a ten, but she's an yeah. elf. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Okay, so <laughs> let's get back to. <laughs> Sky News revealed that this dumb skull. No. Dumb skull. Come on, I'm the dumb skull. <laughs> Sky, 